Well, good morning again. It's good to see y'all. You know, James Brown, our media director, does a lot of really great work for us, not just in the worship service and sound and lighting, but also the videos he produces. That may be my favorite he's done. I'm a little biased. My wife was in it. Uh, but that was a great trip in England. Uh, we, we made some friends who uh, still stream our, our services, so they may have watched that already. And if so, hey, y'all in England, um, we miss you and we're praying for you. But I want us to look at Jeremiah 29 this morning. Jeremiah 29 contains one of the verses that Evangelical Christians like us like to use uh, Jeremiah 29 11. That is a verse that we'll put in cards to recent high school graduates that we'll encourage others with. And when they're going through a tough time, uh, don't worry, God's got plans for you. But I'm here to tell you that most of us misuse that verse. We, we use it and we don't really know what it means. I'm not saying you shouldn't use Jeremiah 29, 11, shouldn't quote it. It's a great verse. I'm saying it doesn't mean what you probably think it means and it's important for you to know what it means. And so we're going to look at that today. But that's not my primary purpose in sharing from this passage today. This is part of a series that we're in here at the start of 2020 called God's Story. And we're looking at how God is constantly at work His story is a story of redemption, a story of bringing peace to chaos. This world began in chaos. God made peace out of that, made a beautiful world. We rebelled against Him, and so we're experiencing the the fruits of that rebellion in the problems of this world. We, We looked at how every one of us has a story that God is trying to write in our individual lives. And if we'll let Him, our story will become part of His story. Your story, the story of your life, will become an integral part of His story of redeeming this whole world. And so we looked at, for instance, a few weeks ago, you've got this elderly couple in in Abraham and Sarah. God comes into their lives and says, here's a plan I have for you. And they choose to say yes to that plan. And God weaves them into His plan of redeeming the whole world. Through them comes the redemption. Then we looked at the story of the Exodus. How the, the descendants of Abraham and Sarah were in slavery, were oppressed, and God brought freedom, made them into a great nation. Last week, Alan shared with you about the temple. And that's a part of the Bible we usually tend to gloss over or kind of go brain dead as we read that part of the Scriptures because it it seems so technical. It's it's almost like reading the notes of an architect. It doesn't seem all that applicable to our lives. But what Alan showed you is the temple was an incredible act of God's grace. We had made our planet a place where you couldn't meet with God anymore. And God said, that's not good enough. I'm going to create a place where even in this sin-stained world, you can still come in contact with me. I'm going to build a bridge between heaven and earth so that everyone who wants to can come into my presence, can be redeemed. And and Alan showed how the ultimate fulfillment of that, Jesus is the real temple. He is the real bridge, the real place where we come and we get access to God and we can receive His love and be saved. But today we pick up with what happened several hundred years later. Because several hundred years later, that beautiful temple that they had built lie in ruins. Several hundred years later, the, the, the Babylonian Empire, the big bad boys to the north, modern-day Iraq, invaded the land of Israel. Now, that had happened before. If you know your Old Testament, you know many times God's people, little tiny Israel, surrounded by all these nations like Assyria and Egypt, many times they'd been in trouble. Many times they'd been invaded. Many times they'd been under siege. And God had always intervened and had rescued them. This time, there was no miracle. This time, God said, listen... I hate to do this, but I'm going to have to allow you to experience the full consequences of your bad choices so that you can see 
that going your own way is not the answer. So that maybe this will cure you of your tendency to follow after gods that cannot save. And so the Israelites saw what they never thought was possible. Their temple was absolutely leveled. The walls of the city of Jerusalem were destroyed. The land was devastated. The people, those who survived, were carried off into captivity. They found themselves in a nation they did not recognize. Around people who spoke a language they did not understand. Worshipped gods they didn't believe in. And pursued values that were so offensive to them as Israelites. That centuries later when John, a Jew, is writing the book of Revelation and he's trying to come up with a metaphor to describe the world in which we will live, the world that God is coming back to judge and destroy to make room for a better place, a world of godlessness and corruption, he calls it Babylon. So they, they live in a world, uh, uh, the, the Israelites used, lived in a world that, were, that was just unrecognizable to them. They didn't know what to do. And you and I can identify A lot of Christians will look around and say, man, things have changed so fast. I remember a day when when we as Christians held a a place in society where we could feel like we had a a spiritual influence, an influence on culture. More and more, that's not the case. More and more, our neighbors don't think like us. They don't worship our God. Now, if you happen to be an unbeliever or an atheist, you might say, well, I don't worship any God. Truth is, everybody worships something. Most people aren't religious, but everybody gives their life to something. And the fact is, among our neighbors, most of them do not worship our God, but they give their life to something else. And so increasingly, you and I seem a little out of sorts or out of, out of step with society. And there are even those who say, you Christians, have your day and you need to move along and realize that your day is gone. Well, what do we do in a culture like that? How do we respond? That's what uh, Jeremiah 29 is about. It's actually a letter written from the prophet Jeremiah who was one of a small group of Israelites who were left behind in the Holy Land after this destruction of their land and their city. And so he's writing a letter to the bulk of his people who are now in exile in Babylon to say, here's what you ought to do. Now among those people in exile, there were two schools of thought. Some said, we need to isolate ourselves. We don't, we're not Babylonians. We don't need to make friends with these people. We don't need to learn their language. We need to create our own alternative culture and, and just live in this bubble safe from the influence of these godless pagans. In fact, there were, there were people who rose up in, in the midst of that group and claimed to be prophets who said, the Lord has shown me we're not going to be here long. Guys, don't even unpack your bags. We're going home. God's going to deliver us from this godless place and we're going to go home. And there were other people on the other side who said, no, we should assimilate. This is our new home, so we should make friends. We should build houses. We should make the best life we can in this new home. So we better learn the language. We better become good Babylonians because that's who we are. That's reality. And and guys, we face the same dichotomy today in Christian life. Because when you talk to Christians about how does a Christian live in a world like today's, where we are increasingly a minority culturally, spiritually, and politically. And some say, yes, that, that school of isolation makes a lot of sense. We need to, we need to just focus on, on our, own little, uh, our own little bubble and just uh, avoid the corruption that comes from being around people who think differently. And if you're the kind of person who, uh, who, who mostly watches and consumes Christian media, websites, TV, radio, and most of your friends, or basically all your friends think like you do, then you probably tend toward that isolation 
mindset. On the other hand, it, there are other Christians who say, no, it's our, our job to fit into society, to, to be as much like our neighbors as we can without compromising the gospel. And if you're one of those people who, when I said it's hard to live today, said, no, it's, I don't feel it's that hard. I, I feel like I fit in just fine. You probably lean toward the, the assimilation model. Does that make sense? So uh, you, you see the screen behind me. Where do you fit between those two? You fit somewhere on that line. You lean more towards fitting in or more towards isolating. All of us somewhere on that, on that continuum. So what is the right answer? What's the right way to be in a world that is increasingly less and less like us? Well, that's the question the people of God had to wrestle with, and that's the question that Jeremiah 29 answers. Verse 4 begins, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For, and here's that verse I told you we use all the time. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Now let me just pause. I'm going to read the rest of the passage in a second. But let me just show you what I'm saying. When we use that verse today, what we're often saying to people is, see, God has great plans for your life. And that's not what that verse means. God wants to prosper you. God wants to give you good things. You've, it's a, it, there's a bright road ahead of you. The world is your oyster. That's not what that verse is saying. Now, does God have plans for your life? Yes, and I think a better verse for that is Ephesians 2.10. What that verse is saying, what Jeremiah 29.11 is saying is, when you've blown it, when you've lost everything, when you have gone so far away from God's plan for your life that you are experiencing devastating consequences, you may think in the midst of those consequences, you may feel like God has totally given up on me. God doesn't love me anymore. God hates me now, and that's why I'm experiencing this. Jeremiah 29.11 says, no, I still have plans for you. I'm still your God and you're still my child. But remember, Jeremiah 29.11 wasn't written to an individual. It was written to a group. It was written to a nation. It was written to a people, the people of God. So the way we apply this today is to say, even though we're now living in a time when it's much harder to be a Christian in America than it used to be, although, let's be honest, way easier than it is to be a Christian in many other parts of the world. Let's not oversell our plight in the world. We're not experiencing persecution by any means. But even though we're in a time when it's getting increasingly hard to be comfortable in our culture, God has not given up on us. He still has plans. We're still His people. So let me pick up there in verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. See, that's the verse I think we should be putting in people's graduation cards. Verse 13, not verse 11. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. 
I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So let's get back to the question. What is Jeremiah saying to people who say we should isolate ourselves from people who don't think like ourselves? Or no, we should fit in with them. We should just be like everyone else. What is God saying? First of all, to the isolationists, he's saying, I'm sorry, you're wrong. Look at verse 4 again. He says, to all those I have sent into exile. Remember, the, the isolationists were saying, this is not God's plan for us. God wants us to be home. God is saying, no, I put you there. You, remember, you may remember a couple weeks ago, I said to you, never ever ask the question, is my suffering from the Lord? Because if your suffering is from the Lord, He'll make sure you know it is. It's always true in Scripture. When God is using external circumstances to punish His people, He makes sure they know. That's why the punishment is effective. And this is God saying to the people, I'm doing this to you. I'm allowing this to happen for a reason. I want you to learn from this. This is not some random event that I'm trying to rescue you from. I am allowing this for my own purposes, for your growth. In fact, in verse 10, he says how long it's going to last. Doesn't usually do that, does he? If I get sick, God doesn't come down and say, okay, Jeff, this sickness is going to last five days or five months. But in this case, he says, your exile will last 70 years. Again, when, again, when, when, when I'm saying Jeremiah 29.11 is not doesn't mean what we often think it means. The people who first read the Scripture would not have read it as good news. What God is saying to them is, everyone reading this letter, the first, person, first people who read this letter, everyone read it and said, oh my goodness, I'm never going to see Jerusalem again. He's telling me it's going to be 70 years before we go home. I won't live that long. He wanted them to understand, this is my purpose right now. You are in your new home, and don't forget it. But then verse 7 is the key. He says, seek the welfare of the city. Now here's the, here's the point. An isolationist mindset says, we're in a world where people don't think like us, and they are our enemies. We need to fight against them. That's the whole idea. For the last 30, 40 years, Christians have been engaged in what we call a culture war. And I would, agree, I would, I would say to you, that is the absolute wrong mindset. Because we're not supposed to be at war with our neighbors. We're supposed to be redeeming them. We're not supposed to consider them the enemy. We're supposed to consider them God's lost children. People He loves just as much as He loves us. And it's our job to reconcile them to God. Not to overcome them in some political battle or some cultural uh, warfare. God says, seek the welfare of the city. Those isolationists would have thought, these are our enemies, we need to fight back against them. God says, no, bless their city. That word welfare is the Hebrew word peace, shalom. We've talked about this in this series. Shalom doesn't just mean peace out. It doesn't mean peace as in a, 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 an absence of conflict. It means blessing, the blessing of God. May you have everything you need. May the blessings of God be poured out upon you. And what God is saying here is be a blessing to the city where you live. Be a blessing in the country where you live. And that includes Babylon. In Matthew 5.16, Jesus said it this way, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. You can't isolate yourself into a little Christian bubble and be the light of the world. You have to live amidst the people of your community. 
You can't just have Christian friends and nothing else and be an influence on people to bring them to the love of God. You have to choose to have those relationships, those transforming relationships with people who don't think like you, with people who have values that are diametrically opposed to yours. That's our job. That's our mission. But on the other hand, God makes it clear He doesn't agree with the assimilators either. And that's what verse 11 is all about. He's saying, remember, I have plans for you. You're still my people because Babylon is not your true home. It's where you live, but it's not where you're from. Never forget where you're really from. Never forget Jerusalem. Never forget that that's where you're really from. Verse 13, like I said, is one of my favorite verses. I think it's the best, it's the most applicable verse in the whole text. And it's a great promise. If you seek God with all your heart, you'll find Him. You know that's the only pursuit in life where you are guaranteed success? You know, if you say, I, I want to be a great athlete, there's no guarantee. Even if God gave you the physical skills, you may get injured. You may, somebody else may be better than you. If you say, I want to be wealthy, you can try and you might succeed, but you might not. If you say, I love this person, I want to marry him or her and, and, and build a great life, somebody else may get them instead. There is no, nothing in life, no arena in life in which you're guaranteed success, except when you say, I want the number one thing in my life to be knowing Jesus Christ. If that becomes your number one thing, you are guaranteed a successful life in terms of you will reach the goal that you have set. He will be found by you. And you might say, well, what does it even mean to seek God with all your heart? Well, what does it mean to seek anything with all your heart? If you're seeking athletic success, for instance, what do you do? You eat well, you, you get up and, and run, you get your body in shape, you, you study the, the, the strategies and the tactics of your sport. If you want to be wealthy, what do you do? You, you study the markets, you, you learn economic principles, you spend time around people who are financially successful and you learn from them. What do you, what do, you do if you want to know Jesus more than anything else? You spend time in His presence. You open His Word. You ask Him for help. You say, Lord, help me to know You more. You make that your daily prayer. You spend time around people who are further along than you spiritually. And if you do that, if you remember every day, this world is not my real home. My real home is with Him. You will succeed. You will become the person God created you to be. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us never forget that we live here, but we're not from here. Somebody else said it this way, America may be the best Babylon on earth, but it's still Babylon. Let's never forget that. Our real home is the new Jerusalem. Our real home is with Jesus Christ. And by the way, if you're one of those people who's discouraged about how uh, cultural influence of Christians is growing less and less, and if you're worried about the day when we lose some of our uh, rights as Christians, some of, our, some of the rights we hold dear, the good news is the first Christians lived in a world that was much like that, where there was no religious freedom, where they had no cultural influence where they had no resources. If you ever want to know how they responded, read the book of Acts sometime. I tell you, I'm not hoping that our culture becomes more like ancient Rome, but the more it becomes like ancient Rome, the more I realize God can do anything He wants. 
to our brothers and sisters in England who are struggling to represent God in a culture where less than 10% of the, of the country goes to church on a weekly basis, be encouraged. God's not done with you. To us as American Christians, no matter what happens, no matter who's in the Oval Office, no matter how big or large our church gets, God is not done with us. Our story is not over. He's still doing great things. So how do we reconcile this? What, what are we to do when we live in a culture where people think differently than us? Well, I think the answer is not isolation, nor is it assimilation. But I think there's a third option, and that's renovation. Our job is to remember where we're from and make our new home like our true home as best we can to renovate the culture around us. Think about it this way. 2 Corinthians 2.14, one of my favorite scriptures says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. I love that. I love that idea of the fragrance of the knowledge of God. And, and here's what I picture when I read that scripture. Have you ever been at work or in school and somebody brings in a bag of food? Maybe they just went out to lunch and they brought back some leftovers. Maybe you had decided you were going to work through lunch. You were going to skip lunch today. And they come back and they've been at McKenzie's and they bring back half of a barbecue sandwich, right? And you're in this big room with 30 people or more. And this little half of the sandwich sitting in a plastic bag, it just pervades the whole place. Everybody smells it. There's not much that smells better than barbecue. And that changes the whole environment. Everyone in the room is, has gone from, yeah, yeah, I don't need to eat because i got work to do, to, uh, you going to finish that? I, I, I mean, you know, I, you're not going to eat that tomorrow, right? You don't eat leftovers. Just, I'll take that off your hands. Don't worry. And what he's saying is, that's our job. We're supposed to be the fragrance of the knowledge of God wherever we go. We're supposed to be the people who pervade the atmosphere of whatever place we enter with the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. Everywhere we go, we should be emissaries of the new Jerusalem, bringing with, them, with us the culture we came from. To put it another way, wherever your people came from, and unless you're full-blooded Native American, your people came from some other place, Mexico, Africa, China, England, Germany, Sweden, wherever they came from, they brought some of their culture with them, didn't they? And that's why when we get done today, we can go out to eat. And if we want to, we can have barbecue. But if we want to, we can also have tacos. And if we want to, we can get Vietnamese noodle soup. Or we can even get the kind of food I've had for the last 10 days. We can drive down to the woodlands and get us some, some uh, lamb kebabs with tahini sauce. I mean, we can get any kind of cultural food because people have brought their culture with them. And that's our job. Do you know that when Jesus came here, that's what he was doing? When Jesus went around performing miracles, He wasn't ending disease forever. That comes later. What He was doing, every time He healed a blind person, every time He made a lame person walk, every time He rose, raised someone from the dead, what was He doing? He was saying, I want you to see what it's like where I'm from. See, where I'm from, people aren't blind. Where I'm from, people don't get sick. Where I'm from, people don't die. Don't you want to be a part of that? And He can enable you to become that same person. We can't raise the dead. We can't heal the sick. But we can be the presence of Christ right where we are. In your schoolroom, in your classroom, in your office, 
in your neighborhood. You can be the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ that just pervades that space. And even though you're just one person, you can have a disproportionate impact. And you might say, but I'm too messed up. I I can't help. That's okay. Because it's not about you. It's about the Christ who lives inside of you. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, He can use you to change the entire atmosphere of wherever you are. See, Jesus, to make sure that everyone who was hungry, everyone who was hungry for what He had, could have it, He laid down His life. He offered Himself as a sacrifice to open the door so that everybody, no matter how messed up they were, no matter how far gone they seemed, could come home and be reconciled to Him. And that means that all of us, all of us, have that opportunity. If you haven't walked through that door, if you haven't come home to a Savior who loves you that much and whose grace is that powerful, I want to invite you to do that today at the end of our service in in just a moment. He died on that cross to open the door for all of us exiles to come home from exile. And three days later, He rose from the dead. And that same power that brought life back into His body can use us, can use us to renovate the world around us. Is that your desire? Is that your heart? If it's not, ask Him to change your heart. If it is, just understand, we cannot fail. As long as we say yes. Will you say yes to Him today?